Okay. We're going to be in Genesis 3 this morning. I'm going to go ahead and turn it in. Genesis 3. Again, I know that's sort of a strange place to be during Advent, but I think it'll make sense once we get into it. During our uh, COVID scare a couple of weeks ago, we had to isolate from each other at the house, and that meant that the youngest got kicked out of his bunk bed and had to sleep in the living room. Uh, one night as I went to turn out the lights, uh, he said that he, he needed to keep a light on, and I asked him why, uh, because in my mind, I, I don't want to see the monster who's coming to get me. <laughs> Naturally, he didn't think that was very funny, and I get it, I'm the worst, right? Uh, but I asked again, and he said, the light keeps the scary things away. Deep theological statement from my 10-year-old. Uh, that, that the scary things, they don't like the light. And so he wanted a light on. And not just a night light, something brighter. And so I left the lamp on until he fell asleep. Uh, it made me think, though, we, we fear the dark because we fear the unknown, Right? And I can remember being that age and being in my bedroom alone at night. Uh, and I always wanted the closet light on. The way my room was situated, the closet light was the perfect light. And I always wanted the closet light on. And so I would turn the closet light on, and then I would go turn my main light off. But I was also terribly afraid of monsters hiding under my bed. Nobody else probably has that problem, but I did. Uh, and so as soon as I turned off the main light, I would run and take a flying leap into my bed so that they couldn't reach out and grab me. Uh, I wanted to make sure they couldn't get me. Uh, so I understand being afraid, wanting light and, and worrying about that stuff. Not that I am anymore. Uh, like I said, now not only can I not run, uh, but I'd rather not see the monster. So I sleep in complete darkness if at all possible. Uh, it even bothers me sort of when the moon shines through my window and brightens up the room. I get a little perturbed, but I'll wake up in the night with the light shining. Uh, the older I've gotten, the more comfortable I am in the dark. And that's perfectly normal in terms of being an adult and sleeping and all that sort of stuff. But it also serves as sort of a metaphor in terms of how I've grown accustomed to the whole thing about shadows and obscurity and all that stuff that we're talking about right now. The whole loss of innocence that comes with making bad choices and chasing after sin instead of righteousness. The path that leads us from the innocence of our youth to where we end up, lost and confused in a world full of darkness and chaos, which is what we're going to look at today. And again, like I said earlier, I know it seems weird to be in the book of Genesis during Advent, uh, but if we're going to grasp our situation and our need, I think we need to understand how darkness creeps into our lives. And the origin story of how that happens just so happens to be found in Genesis 3. So if you would follow along with me as we read there, we'll begin in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? 
And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." man called his wife's name Eve, because she was mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. May God bless the reading of his word. There's a lot of ground to cover. Um, I think this is one of the most fascinating passages in the entire Old Testament. There's so much going on and so many layers of meaning that we could spend a very long time unpacking it. Uh, now, I'm not going to attempt to do that this morning, uh, because we're here in this passage to look at a specific theme that's contained within it. We know that when God created the heavens and the earth, there was astonishing emptiness and chaotic darkness. That's the way Genesis 1 describes it. Uh, we also know that God then poured into the creation as light which means that even in the course of day and night, there was light. So when Adam and Eve were created, 
They were created in a world of light, the light of God, represented within the creation by the sun and the moon and the stars. And these were ever-present reminders of the light of God that was around them. It's in this setting that we see everything take a turn. And we've looked at this passage before and talked about the two trees in the center of the garden and there were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. About how Adam and Eve could eat from any tree except the tree of knowledge. And I speculated some of the reasons for why that could have been, like the idea that the tree of knowledge was there for God because only God could handle the knowledge of good and evil, things like that. Now, we could easily get caught up in wondering about what kind of fruit it was. You know, we've heard debates about that sort of thing. Uh, throughout history, it's been represented in various ways, uh, most notably, I think, as an apple tree. We're probably all familiar with that one, uh, although there's no knowing for certain. Uh, personally, I think it was fixed because that's what Adam and Eve covered themselves with when they found out they were naked. They were right there. Um, but, you know, who knows for sure? We're not... We're not sure about that. It's not worth arguing about. The point is, that's not what's important here. These are details, but they're not what's important. What is important is the deeper layer of meaning being relayed. As in, what was the situation before and after Adam and Eve ate from the tree? How, how are they different? What changed? So that's what we're going to focus on for, for a bit here. Uh, based on what we find leading up to this pivotal moment, everything before they ate from the tree seemed to be really good, right? The Lord God used to walk in the cool of the day, which was probably early morning, just before or at sunrise, right around that time of day. Uh, Adam and the Lord had spent a good amount of time together naming the animals. Uh, and based on 2.16, Adam seemed to have been a vegetarian, eating from trees and plants. like That was the main thing going on. Uh, God also created a woman to come alongside Adam and tending the garden, gave him a helper. And this shows us a few things about the situation before they ate. It was peaceful. The resources were abundant. They were, they were everywhere. They could have anything in the garden. And the relationships that were there were the most important thing. Humanity's relationship with God, each other, and the earth all come into focus in this passage. And this shows us that before Adam and Eve even uh, ate from the, the tree of knowledge, they were in right relationship with God, each other, and the rest of creation around them. Everything was going as it should. Put simply, everything was shalom. You all have heard that word before. It means everything as it should be everything in its right place. There was light and love and life, and these provided order. It couldn't ever have been any better a situation than it was. But then we get to chapter 3, and we meet the temptation. We've spent time talking about the serpent before too, so I'm not going to focus a whole lot on that this morning. Uh, we arrive at the scene where the serpent struck up a conversation with Eve, and Adam's present. He's not in the foreground of what's happening in that first part. Uh, in other words, he's not actively engaged. Not yet. He's sort of just hanging out. The conversation took place. 
Uh, the serpent questioned what God said and then assured Eve that everything would be fine. Saying things about the tree and the situation that, that were actually true. The, the statements that the serpent makes are actually true. The serpent said, you will not surely die. And they didn't. Not right then and there. But they began to. For a reason that we'll get back to in a bit. And the serpent also said, when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And they were. Although what they saw when they were opened wasn't as good as what they might have imagined. And the serpent also said, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And they did. But they were not able to handle it. Which means they now had to carry a burden they were not capable of carrying. In the light, they had everything they needed. It was provided for them. Everything was shalom. Everything was ordered just as it should have been. But then they were presented with an opportunity to make a different choice, to change things up. And that's exactly what they did. So let's look at how things changed. Well, first they realized they were naked. And there's sort of an interesting play on words uh, that takes place here in the Hebrew, that, that's the word that's used to describe this critical moment of change. In the Hebrew, we find the word erom, and it's a descriptive word, like an adjective form of another word called ur, which means to be naked or exposed. In a sense, they had always been naked, but now they were exposed. And they recognized this immediately. Because part of what would naturally come along with the knowledge of good and evil would be the knowledge that they had taken on a burden that was too much for them to bear. They had lived uncovered in the light of God, but now that they had chosen to try and take on God-likeness on their own, they began to realize what a gift their previous way had been. They began to understand how overwhelming it would be for them to undertake such a task on their own. <clears throat> Pardon me. It's almost as if they were able to take a step back and then sort of see the scope of God's role in creation and in providing for them. And at this point, they, they tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. Uh, but it wasn't just the, with the fig leaf loincloths. That wasn't enough. Uh, when they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, they hid among the trees. They had lived freely in the light of God's goodness, but now they were hiding from it. And in hiding from God, they were hiding from the light. They were hiding in the shadows of trees leaves. There's a layer of meaning here that we can't afford to miss. What was once in the light was now being hidden. Going back to a week ago, we saw that the whole reason God created everything astonishingly empty and full of chaotic darkness was so that the light could shine out. It was a means of introduction as if God was saying, I am the light. I am the one who shines in the darkness. And now Adam and Eve were moving away from the light. 
not fully into the astonishing emptiness and chaotic darkness of the void, but into the shadows, that sort of liminal space between the two. The space where light is distorted, where it does not shine fully. The place where light is still evident, but as a hint, rather than an absolute reality. Adam and Eve moved into this space as a result of fear and probably a good amount of embarrassment and shame as well. They knew more now, more than they did and more than they could handle, so they hid. They didn't want to be confronted by the light. They didn't want the light to shine on them anymore because even though they once felt its life-giving warmth, now they only felt exposed. The layers of this story go so deep. And they transcend time. We don't need to have existed in the ancient world when this was written to grasp its meaning in our own lives. We don't have to be fully versed in ancient Hebrew culture to recognize that we too make choices in our lives that expose us, that move us away from God's providence in favor of our own, that give us more than we can handle and leave us running for the shadows for cover. See, this story is our story. And it shows us not only who Adam and Eve were, but who we are and who God is through it all. In verse 9, we see the Lord call out to Adam asking where he was. And I've said this before, but it's worth repeating. I don't think the Lord was asking for Adam's location so much as for where he was relationally as a result of what had happened. I say this because it just makes more sense than the idea that God really didn't know where Adam and Eve were. I mean, that would be like an adult being outsmarted at hide-and-seek with a two-year-old. You know? I just don't think that's what was going on. Instead, God was trying to get Adam and Eve to step out of the shadows and back into the light. And when they did, it, it sort of took them a second, and then the Lord had a difficult conversation with them. Not because he was angry and couldn't wait to drop the curse on him, which is how I've actually heard this preached before. That doesn't make sense either, given the details of the story and how God cared for Adam and Eve through the event and after. On the contrary, God had that difficult conversation out of love, because that's what life is all about. The Lord loved Adam and Eve and wanted the best for them even after they ate from the tree of knowledge, even after they covered themselves and hid behind the trees. They still weren't completely ready to step into the light. When God asked Adam if he had eaten from the tree of knowledge, he blamed Eve for it, almost as if he pushed her out from behind the tree. It was her fault. She did this. And then when God asked Eve about it, she blamed the serpent, also pushing blame beyond herself. And it's, as if, it's as if each was trying to push blame off on the other and remain hidden in the shadows. Which is yet another truth this story relates about the condition of humanity. We don't like owning up to our mistakes, to our bad choices, and to our sins. We want to avoid 
to point the finger anywhere but at ourselves. Because ultimately, we don't want to step out of our hiding place in the shadows and into the light either. We don't want to do that. <clears throat> as a result of all this, the Lord had to fill them in on what would happen as a result. Again, not out of anger or vengeance, but out of love. He was warning them. This is what this means. And after dealing with the serpent, the Lord explained to Adam and Eve the consequences of their actions. Not a moment... This wasn't a moment of fierce anger. It was a moment of grief. God knew this meant removing them from the garden and from the tree of life so that they wouldn't be stuck in their current state forever. But before removing them, the Lord made clothing for them out of skins. That is, the hides of animals. Animals who lost their lives because of what Adam and Eve did in order to cover them. They had gone from naked to exposed, and even though they had made fig leaf loincloths, the Lord knew that that wouldn't cut it out in the wild. They needed covering and protection from the elements, so God took the lives of animals to cover them. If we dig below the surface of this into the next layer or so, we find the basis for Passover, and also Israel's sacrificial system. It all ties back to this moment. It was always meant as a shield of sorts, a way to cover our sense of exposure so that we might be able to step out of our hiding place in, in the shadows into the light of God's love. But the sacrificial system was never going to fix the situation. <clears throat> it didn't have the power to make things right again, to bring us back into shalom. Because the sacrificial system could not bring us back to the tree of life. It couldn't make that way. As a result, it could not overcome the inevitable, sorry, the inevitable death that comes from choosing our own way and living in the shadows. So God had to bring life to us. And this is the whole meaning of Advent. Life has come into the world through Jesus Christ and is once again available to us through the sacrifice he made that not only covers us, but restores us to life. At this time of year when it gets dark earlier and stays dark longer, when nature's cycle of death and rebirth takes center stage, this story of God entering creation as light at the beginning, and again at Advent, becomes a sort of a promise. A promise that things will not remain in darkness. Darkness doesn't get the final word. That a day is coming when light will overcome all the shadows. A day when the light that shines in this world right now through us will finally return and fill all creation this was promised in Isaiah 60, verse 19, where the prophet wrote, The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. John, the apostle, 
echoed this in Revelation 22.5, writing that the night will be no more. <clears throat> they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So this is the promise of Advent, that the light has come and that it will return. Until that time, we carry the light in us and illuminate the world of chaotic darkness wherever we are. Okay, so verses 22 through 24, uh, God removed them from the garden and the tree of life, and that meant they would begin to die. It would take a while, but that's what that is. And as strange as this may seem, this was clearly the better option at that point. When the Lord God addressed the situation, it wasn't in annoyance or anger or anything like that. It was in sadness and concern for Adam and Eve. Recognizing that they would be forced to live in an eternal state of carrying the overwhelming burden of knowing right from wrong and not being able to measure up to it, the Lord moved them east and set a guard at the entrance of the garden so that they couldn't get back to the tree of life. And as sad as it was, <clears throat> this was an act of mercy, an act of love. The Lord was keeping Adam and Eve from having to live up to something they could in no way live up to. Instead, they were clothed and sent away, but not from the Lord. That's one of the mistakes people seem to make about this story as well, like God sent them away from himself. They were not removed from God's presence. They were removed from the garden and from the two trees, specifically the tree of life. And they may have thought they were being removed from the presence of God. They may have felt that way, as we sometimes do. But the Lord is not bound to any specific location. God wasn't trapped in the garden, unable to pursue Adam and Eve. We know this because if we keep reading, the next thing that happened was Adam and Eve welcomed the son into the world with the help of the Lord. It's the actual words they use. And then the Lord interacted personally with Adam and Eve's children, and, and then their children, and, and so on and so on, until we get to Abraham and the covenant promise, the promise that would lead directly to Advent. We do know that the nature of God's interaction with them changed, right? As if God never fully let there be light in the same way after the whole thing with Adam and Eve because the consequences at that point would be devastating. Like Adam and Eve could, could handle that. Before they ate from the tree of knowledge and everything went sideways, they were eating, they were life. That's, that's what they had. They could have handled the light of God's presence, but afterwards things were different. And we know from the story of God's interaction with Moses in Exodus 33 that the Lord covered him when passing by on the mountains so that he could survive the experience, claiming no one may see my face and live. That's what the Lord said to Moses. So while God is still actively present through the story, the fact that humanity no longer has access to the tree of life, it comes with a cost. We are mortal. We are fragile. We are frail. We can't possibly handle the immense light of God's glory in our present state. We also know that we were not only capable of hiding in the shadows, 
but in a very real way, we are able to bring darkness into the world as well. In essence, creation was brought out of darkness by the Lord during creation, that whole let there be light moment, and yet humanity plunged it back into the shadows after the garden. While it's easy to blame Adam and Eve for this as if they were the real problem, the truth is that each and every one of us act in agreement with their choice by making the same choice ourselves in our own lives. Now, I'm not saying that any of us ever had it as good as they had it, but haven't we all taken a good situation and made a choice that seems pleasing but turns out to be nothing but trouble? A choice that didn't necessarily cause our immediate death but drove a wedge of shame and embarrassment into our minds or into relationships so that we could no longer live in right relationship with our maker or each other or the world? Haven't we run away from God? Haven't we tried to cover ourselves and failed? Haven't we hid in the bushes afraid to be vulnerable before the Lord? Haven't we pushed the blame on others? Haven't we felt the terrible effects of the curse? And haven't we rejected God's light and brought darkness into this world with our thoughts and our words and our actions? Aren't we just as responsible as Adam or Eve or anyone else? This is why we need Advent. This is why we need the light Jesus brought into the world when he became one of us on a silent night in Bethlehem. We need the light of the world to take up residence within us. We need to walk in the light that darkness cannot grasp or overcome. We need that light to return and illuminate the entire creation once and for all. We need the second advent. And until that day, until Jesus returns, we need to recognize that we are the light of the world, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Just as Jesus said in Matthew 5.14, we are the light. We can't be the light of the world if we are busy hiding in the shadows or causing the shadows. We can't be the light of the world while at the same time thinking and talking and acting like the darkness. That's just not how that works. So as we move closer to Christmas, we need to continually turn our hearts toward the light, toward Jesus, the light of the world, because he is the hope of Advent, who was and is and is to